All right, so we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark. And so if you can turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. It's uh, good to be uh, amongst the brothers and the sisters in the Lord and reminding each other of the goodness of God. Brother Mo. So let, let us go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning, thanking you so much for your goodness, your kindness, your tender mercies. God, as your word has said, it is your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. And we are so grateful, oh God, that you are so patient in our lives, that you have not given up on us, but you continue to pursue us with a relentless love. God, I pray that this morning you would grab a hold of our attention. If there's anything that would be distracting us, that we would be reminded of the cross. Lord, I pray that as we read through your word, Holy Spirit, would you minister to each one of us? Remind us, oh God, how merciful Jesus is to us. We need you this morning. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So, um, last week, Brother Howard touched up on a, a part where Jesus is sitting down with his disciples and they are what we would call the, the Lord's Supper, the last supper that Jesus had with the disciples. And this is where he institutes the Lord's Supper, but it's also an anticipation of the coming uh, kingdom that would be established. And so you find this situation where they're finally sitting down at the table and, and they're eating, they're breaking bread. And right from here, this is where we get to this part of the passage where they're leaving that section and, and they're going off to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is what the Word of the Lord says. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said, Emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, you're asleep. Could you not watch one hour? Watch 
and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 43, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and once again said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out? As against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Man, this is an intense moment. This is a part where finally Jesus is getting to the, to the part in his life where he begins to see that the people closest to him are leaving. They're leaving him by himself in the hour of trial. They leave him by himself. They cowered away at this very moment. And this is a picture that we're seeing. This is the people that walked with Jesus. But when the time came for them to stand their ground, they ran away. Like back in the days in high school, you have your homies and you're fixing to get in a fight and they all leave. You're like, where are they at? You're by yourself when no one else is around. And Jesus found himself by himself. As he enters the darkest time of his life. It is beautiful to see how the disciples are walking with Jesus. And they're singing hymns. They're praising God as they enter in this time. It says that in verse 26, they went to the Mount of Olives. And so they were praising God. And so you see the journey that Jesus is taking as he's going to the cross. This is the, these are the beginning stages. And as they're walking, follow with me because Jesus is there with them and they're praising the Lord. And, and all of a sudden he turns to them and he says, you will all fall away 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Can you imagine at that very moment, Jesus is walking with them and all of a sudden he turns to them. He says, look, let me tell you something. All of you will fall away. What? You could imagine their hearts probably dropping. Like, what do you mean, Jesus? We're all going to fall away. We're following you right now. We're walking with the rabbi. And now you're telling us that we will all fall away. And then Jesus goes on to quote out of Zechariah where he says, it is written. In other words, this is a prophecy. This is something that was written about in the Old Testament that that they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So as Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, he's telling them, this is a prophecy that will be fulfilled. What we see then here then is something that's amazing because Jesus' death, it is part of God's plan. His suffering and his death, it is divinely ordained. The evil intentions and actions of sinful man are included in God's plan of redemption. Because he's telling them they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But it is written. The Old Testament speaks of this. So they're fully aware of that. But another thing is that, man, Jesus is always quoting Scripture. Jesus is entering the hour where he's going to go into the darkest hour of agony and anguish. And he is quoting scripture. He's relying on the word of God. He is demonstrating dependency upon God's word. And this is so beautiful for us because in the times of temptation and hardship, what do you and I rely on? Do we rely on the word of God? Do we allow the word of God to inform our thinking? Or do we allow the world to inform our thinking? If Jesus Christ, the son of God, is relying on the word of God, shouldn't you and I do the same? In the hour of temptation. In the hour of trial. And now another thing that we see, that right after Jesus tells them that, verse 28, he says, but... After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Man, this is so beautiful. Jesus gives his disciples hope in the midst of chaos. He doesn't just leave them there. He tells them that I will go before you. When I am resurrected again, I will go before you to that place where I first called you from. Amen. And this... This drew me into worship because Jesus is telling them, you remember when you heard, first heard my voice, where I called you by name to follow me? That's the place where I'm going to meet you at. Although you're going to see me struck down, I will be raised up in victory and I will go before you and wait for you. So when you think that all hope is lost, oh no, I will be waiting for you. What comfort from the merciful Savior to the disciples to know that he will be waiting for us 
Like, you're running the race, and at the finish line is your family, and you're like, Trying your hardest to get there, and you knowing that when you get there, you're going to feel this embracement. And Jesus is telling them, I am going before you, and I will be there. What a promise for them to hold on to. When the very currents of devastation try to drown the disciples in fear, Jesus is telling them, I will be there for you. I will be there for you. This is the very place where he will recommission them to go and do the work of carrying out the gospel to all people, to all nations. And today, here in Houston, this is the work of the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. But, how do the disciples respond to this news? Look at verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Man, Peter always got something to say, huh? He says, although they fall away, I will not. How arrogant is that statement? This self-confidence in himself, like, they might fall away, but Jesus, I'm not. What we will see that pride comes before the fall. What we will see is that Peter thought of everyone else around him as being weak and him as indestructible, as untouchable. That somehow he thinks that his own willpower is sufficient in the hour of testing. Outwardly, that might sound courageous, but it is deeply rooted in pride. But can't we also be the same as Peter? You see, thinking lightly of the warnings that Jesus gives, the warnings of upcoming danger, only falls on deaf ears and pride begins to blind us from the reality of the situation we're in, we act on impulse rather than trusting in God's promises. And that's a familiar territory for many of us. The scriptures say in Proverbs, it says, pride comes before destruction and then arrogant spirit before a fall. You see, we often lose sight of these words and we end up reaping what we've sown. In Genesis 4-7, it says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. That word desire for you, it is like saying that someone violates the other person. And the other person that was violent now is in shame. This is what's saying that sin is crouching at the door waiting to do that. To leave you filled with shame. And so Peter immediately with his, with his response of bravery and loyalty... Man, Jesus is seeing right through it. Oh, Peter, prideful heart, thinking that you can do this on your own. 
I'm trying to tell you that when the rooster, before the rooster sings three times, before he crows three times, he said, you would have already denied me twice. Twice. Hmm. You would have thought that Peter at this time would have said, oh, Jesus, like, like you know, one of those heart checks, right? But man, I'm telling you that pride can blind a man's heart. Because then what we see, Peter's response, he says this. But he said emphatically, and this word emphatically is actually, what it means is a forceful way without doubt. So Peter here is telling them in a forceful way without doubting in himself. He says this. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. If I must die with you, I will not deny you, Jesus. At this very moment, Jesus could have been offended because what is he saying? Jesus, you're lying. Right? Jesus, you're lying and I know what I'm talking about. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. This is what he's saying here. Jesus had every right to, let me slap you one time, put you in check. But he didn't. Look at the gracious hand of our Savior. Because even if Peter tells him, says, no, I won't deny you. Even if I have to die, I won't deny you. And look at the rest of the people. It says, and they all followed him. They all said the same thing. They, they all said, no, 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 Jesus we're not going to deny you. Man, how contagious is sin, huh? <laughs> that it begins to bring in everybody else. You see and you hear the warning signs, but yet you still keep on going and you say, Nah, Jesus, I got this. I got this. I know what I'm talking about. You see, one time or another, you and I can relate with Peter here, right? Can I hear an amen on that? Or am I the only one, right? No, like for real. We can somehow think that we can stand firm on our own strength and not deny Jesus in that hour of trial. But the reality is that we have all fallen short when we don't heed the warning and when we begin to rely upon our own willpower, we will end up in a worse situation than we ever imagined and although we have said similar things and acted in a similar way as Peter we are all under the Savior's favor where forgiveness and mercy is extended to us to restore us back so Peter is going to see this because although Peter will deny him we see that when Jesus is resurrected who does he ask for first? He tells them, go get Peter and the rest of the disciples. I'm telling you that Jesus is so merciful. So merciful. But now as he gets into the very moment where he's going to need his friends, his closest friends to him, look at what happens. Verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter. Again, Peter, the prideful one. Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus is stepping into the garden. He is facing the reality of the cross where he will suffer and die a most horrific and humiliating death. And it says that he is greatly distressed and troubled. A question that rises up in this because Jesus will then say, Father, if you could take this cup from me, so the question that, that, that really wrestles inside Jesus, you're being greatly distressed because you're fixing to die? Because you're fixing to be given over to the hand of the enemy? You're asking your father to remove the cup? Why is that causing such great distress? Look, there's some, uh, uh, I'm going to give you a few little stories of uh, some disciples that later on in history, that when these are people that died for their faith, and I want you to just capture closely what's taking place in here. It says uh, two, two uh, guys that were burned at the stake, Nicholas Ridley and, and Hugh L- L- Latimer. It says in, in England, 1555, they were tied together and they were set on fire at their feet. And they both said, be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. This is why they're catching on fire. They're praising Jesus. Now here goes another one. John Bradford and John Leaf, they were burned at the stake with fire. And as the fire was being brought out, one guy tells the other, Be of good comfort, my brother, for we will have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. And Bradford and Latinir raised up their hands praising God as they're being caught on fire. So how is it that they're able to face death with such joy, but yet our Savior is under great distress? Is the captain of our salvation lacking courage? There is something more that's taking place here. There's something heavier that's causing Jesus such great anguish. It is not dying at the hand of the Roman soldiers. It is not because he's going to be beaten and put a crown of thorns over his head. That is not what's causing great anguish. There's something more going on, family. We sometimes can simplify the the horrific picture that we see at the cross. We can make light of that. But when Jesus hung on the cross, oh, he is bearing the weight of God's wrath for you and me. When it speaks of that cup, it is a metaphor that is used in the Old Testament For the furious wrath of God. 
for sinners like you and I. Oh, but God is love. How can then you talk that God will cast people into hell? Let me remind you, family, you and I were created to worship God, but we've chosen not to worship God and go in a different direction. So hell is because we choose to enter into hell. You want to be Lord of your life? Fine, the God, God says, go ahead. You will spend eternity separated from God in eternal condemnation, in eternal anguish. So when Jesus is there thinking about the cup, it is the furious wrath of God that he is enduring for you and I. So what we see here when he says, remove this cup from me. He's not thinking about the Roman soldiers. He is thinking about the wrath of God that he would have to drink down every single drop of the wrath of God so that not even one drop of his wrath would land on you. Now that's love. That is love. When we say God is love, yes, look at the cross. Look at the cross and be reminded. Let that stir the affections of your heart to worship God, to worship him. So when we see this, family, it says, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. This is the relationship between the Father and the Son. They enjoyed such beautiful harmony between one another for all eternity. And at this very moment at the cross, the Father was going to abandon the Son. We know how it feels when someone abandons us and rejects us, right? So now imagine... God the Father and God the Son had always enjoyed this beautiful, glorious love. And at the cross, the Father would abandon the Son to bring a people like us into his family. I'm telling you, if that don't lead us to worship, then I fear for your soul. Because this should move our hearts because Jesus, you would do this for me? You would do this for me, a sinner? But God demonstrates his own love in that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Glory be to God. Glory be to God. And so what we see here is Abba Father. This beautiful relationship between the son and the father, he's, he's knowing. But in the hour, this darkest hour, he's crying out to his father. But look at what he does. Yet not what I will, but what you will be done. Jesus didn't cower away. Jesus humbly submitted himself to the will of the father. In his darkest hour, he didn't retrieve. He kept going for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He endured the cross. 
The cross that brings death, that brings shame, that brings condemnation. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Hallelujah. Do you see such love? Such love, the magnitude of his love for you and I. Our sins nailed him to the cross. We deserved punishment, but we received mercy. We received mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. And what we find here is that he says, not my will, but your will be done. Perfect righteousness is being fulfilled for you and I. In Philippians, we capture this picture where he says that obediently he went to the cross. He died on the cross. He obeyed all the way to the end. So what we find here is that Jesus is fulfilling the obedience that you and I needed to be brought into heaven, into the very presence of God. So Jesus, all the way through in his darkest hour, he's He's knowing the anguish that he is entering into. He is getting a foretaste of what he's going to experience on the cross. And he gets up and he says, not my will, but your will be done. And so now we get to the point where Peter, he tells, he comes out and he, t- he sees Peter sleep. And he says, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? I mean, when I really need you. Couldn't you have been there praying and interceding for me? And he says, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Key, key points here, family. Temptation. We begin to stop being watchful and we, we get a little drowsy in our prayer. And what begins to happen? It opens up the door for temptation. But I'm telling you, when you're in communion with God, oh, your antennas are on alert. When you're experiencing this precious communion with God, and the Lord Jesus tells him, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is not saying that your flesh, oh, oh, it's weak and you can't do nothing, no. What it's saying, it is weak to God, but it is strong towards the world. So what you're seeing here, yeah, the flesh is weak towards the things of God. But I am telling you that the things of this world, oh, it's trying to find refuge in that. So he's saying the spirit indeed is willing. The spirit indeed is willing to bring you to the cross, to bring you to Jesus. But your flesh is going to be fighting against it. There is war. Within us. Right? Like, like we know we need to spend time in the presence of God, but we say, no, let me spend time in the presence of TV. Right? I'm missing my show. Right? I'm telling you, God stirs the affections of a heart to draw closer to him. And in those moments, what do we do? But what we're finding then, family, is this. As Jesus tells him that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he says, again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. (laughs) 
Man, I'm telling you, when you start drifting away and all of a sudden the Lord calls you to him, like, you don't even know what to say. When a brother or sister addresses you, you don't even know what to say. When you're in that moment, you don't even know what to say. And we see here, like, man, fatigueness had kicked in. They were tired. I mean, I, I could imagine one of the brothers who was telling me that, right, he was trying to get up and, and pray, and he kept trying to fall asleep and fighting it. Man, it, it's real. The struggle is real, right? But Jesus here entered the darkest time of his life, and his closest friends were forsaking him. His closest friends were abandoning him. I want you to see that the king is entering this time of suffering alone. Alone with no one around. And what we see, not only is he forsaken by his friends, but at the end he will be forsaken by his father. And all of this for you and I. Now, he tells him, it is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of of sinners. Rise, let us be going and see my betrayer is at hand. Man, you know, Peter had just made such a profound confession saying, Jesus, I got your back. I got your back. And we see that in this moment, there's evidences of the struggle. Now we get to verse 43. And it says, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came in one of the, with one of the twelve, which was one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with, sword, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying that the man that I kiss sees him lead him away under guard. And Judas, which was one of the inner circle, people from the inner circle, is the one betraying him. One who on the outside looked like a follower of Jesus. One who on the outside looked like he was going to church. One who on the outside was singing hymns with the rest of the guys. One who on the outside outwardly looked like a follower of Jesus, but at the end was the one that was betraying the Son of God. And this is trembling to our souls. Because we see here Judas then betraying Jesus with a kiss. A sign of affection. But he is betraying the Son of God. And they lay hands on him and they seize him. And it says that one of the guys that was there, he drew his sword out and sliced that ear. And guess who that guy was? Peter, man. And that brother there, I'm telling you, he gangster. He pulls out the sword and slices him up. But then it says that Jesus hey, immediately said, no, 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 Peter, you, you live by the sword. You're going to die by the sword, Peter. So he goes and heals that guy. 
But what we're seeing, though, is that, man, I'm telling you, Peter, one thing after another after another keeps on messing it up. Keeps on failing the Lord Jesus Christ. He made this big old proclamation announcing his, his bravery and loyalty to Jesus. And what we see here is one thing after another after another. Now, Jesus tells them, hey, you came out here to capture me as if I was some kind of robber with swords and clubs to capture me. This is giving insight to the way that Jesus was being treated as if he were one of us. And look at what happens here. He says, look, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left them and fled. Each one of the disciples, even Peter, took off running. In Jesus' darkest hour, when he was being handed over to his betrayer, everyone flees. Jesus said they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter says, no, Jesus, even if I got to die with you, I die with you. What happened now? They all fled away. And verse 51 and 52 captures a picture to not only, not only what happens to the disciples, but it is also communicating something that happened in the garden. This is the garden of Gethsemane. But this is in the garden where Adam and Eve first were in communion with God. Follow with me. It says, and they led, uh, and, and the young man followed him with nothing but linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth, and, they, and he ran away naked. That is symbolic to shame. The disciples ran away shameful. They, they rejected the Savior. They denied the Savior. They abandoned Jesus Christ, the rabbi. What we find here, look, in Genesis, we find this beautiful relationship between Adam and Eve and God. The moment that temptation hit Adam, where Adam should have been victorious, he failed. Through his disobedient sin spread into all the world. But through the second Adam, which is Jesus... In this garden here, he was victorious where Adam failed. And it is through one man's obedience that righteousness is accredited to you and I. So today, you and I are recipients of this grace. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. It is his victory now that is given to us. Where the first Adam found themselves naked and filled with shame... The disciples did the same, but what we find that Jesus then, he would hang on the cross and bear our shame. He would bear our guilt. He would hang on the cross for you and I. In Corinthians it says, 
But he who knew no sin became sin in our behalf so that you and I can become the righteousness of God. The great exchange takes place at the cross. This is a picture of what was going to take place at the cross. The perfect righteousness of Jesus is accredited to us. And our guilt and our shame, our condemnation, it is accredited to Jesus. So when he's hanging on the cross, it is for you and I. It is for you and I. Jesus took our place at the cross of Calvary so that when you and I fell or when you and I denied Jesus, we can be reminded what Scripture says, that He is faithful. That even though when we are unfaithful, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. Oh, what beauty, the merciful hand of our Savior. The picture that we get here, as he is on the journey to the cross, a foretaste of what was going to take place at the cross, we find here at the garden. So today, family, You might have experienced moments of agony and anguish. There is someone in Jesus Christ that you can trust in in those moments of darkness. We do not serve a God who is far away from us, but a God who can relate to us in our darkest hour. It is Jesus Christ. For we have a high priest who can relate with us. Although he was tempted like you and I, he never sinned. So Jesus Christ can sympathize with us. But not only that, there's going to be seasons of our life where we will deny the Savior. But in those moments, He is not casting us away, but He is calling us to Himself. Turn away from whatever you was clinging to. And cling back to the cross of Calvary. For nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's all we have. And that's all we need. So today, in whatever moment you find yourself in, as you come today, I encourage you. Keep it 100 with Jesus. Keep it 100 with yourself. Be honest with yourself. The Lord is not going to be surprised by your sin. Jesus already died on the cross for your sin. But because he died on the cross for that sin, should we run back to it? No. Let us come to Jesus. So as we have this time to reflect this time where we reflect upon what Jesus is communicating through His Word. Maybe you've experienced people who have betrayed you in your life and you're having a hard time to forgive. You have someone here in Jesus Christ 
who has experienced what you've experienced. And Jesus said as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Turn to Jesus by faith in what he has done and be reminded that your sin was horrific as well. And that you denied Jesus, that you forsook Jesus, but yet he showed you mercy and grace. Cling to him. Cling to him. He will give you the grace to forgive. Maybe you are going through a season in your life where it's dark. And you, have, you feel like there's no one else around. God promises to never forsake you. For it says he will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a precious promise from God to us. God is there for us. He is not against us, family. The enemy will tell you that God doesn't love you. Where is he at? In your darkest hour, you're crying out, but you don't hear him. We're not supposed to be moved by feelings, but by the truth of the word of God. He is there for you in your darkest hour. Well, maybe today you realize, I have never trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I know that if I was to die today, what I deserve is God's judgment. But I don't want God's judgment. I want his mercy. I invite you today. The only thing that separates you is faith in him. Turn to Jesus by faith. Embracing what he has done for you. He has lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And he has died the death that you and I deserve. And it says that three days later, he rose again in victory. He defeated death, sin, and Satan at the cross. And that divine declaration... That the Father accepted all that the Son had done is for you and I now. So come to Him by faith. So at this time, let us bow our heads. But as we bow our heads, I invite you. Come up for prayer if you need in prayer. Come to Jesus. Church will not save you. Your homie ain't going to save you. Your tia is not going to save you. Only Jesus can truly save you. Let's bow our heads. Oh God. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the word says we shall fear no evil for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And so today, oh God, if we find ourselves in the valley, I pray that you would remind us, Lord, of your saving mercy. God, that before we would even take communion, God, that we would get right with you, Lord. That we would come to you in repentance and faith. That we would repent of clinging to the idols of this world. And that by faith we would turn to Jesus Christ.
that we would forsake all false saviors and that we would cling to Christ, our true Savior. So we ask today, O oh God, work in us, Lord. Work in us. As we celebrate every Sunday communion, bread and the juice, the bread symbolizing the body of Christ. The juice symbolizing the blood of Jesus. It is a celebration of the death of Christ. So before you would come up here and take this time of communion, I encourage you to get right with God. He invites us to come to Him. For He will not cast us away, but He invites us. He says, confess your sins and I am faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. There's not a sin that we have committed that's too great for God. And so I ask you today, turn to Jesus. The invitation is open to all those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may come and take the bread and the juice as you walk back to the chair. Take that time to pray with God.